You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Now, you know, Ben, if you looked at this week's co-main event podcast coming on the heels of UFC Fight Night 120 down there in Norfolk. Norfolk, got it. And in advance of UFC Fight Night 121 featuring a main event of uh, Fabricio Verdum versus Marcin Tibera. Take your word for it. You might assume not a lot going on. Maybe hashtag ain't shit going on. However, if you actually lived through the last week in the mixed martial arts world, you know surprisingly newsy hashtag a lot of shit going on a surprisingly newsy last seven days in the world of mixed martial arts fights falling apart new fights being made uh tournaments being announced lots of stuff happening great ones failing drug tests people losing their damn minds up at somebody else's event it's been a roller coaster it really has we got a lot to talk about this week we do and pretty much none of it involves the fight coming up Fabricio no, Verdun versus Marcin Tibor. No, it does not. So, In fact, as I believe we were talking about, did not get a single listener mail question about this event coming up. All of the people who tuned in to hear our piercing analysis of Fab Verdun versus Marcin Tibera are going to be disappointed. What am I going to do with all these notes? Rustling paper sound. Copious notes that you took in preparation for this? crumpling up paper sound throws into a trash can see now we just have to take my word for it that i had notes we really need to get a soundboard in here yeah we do not just over there narrating you're gonna fix this in post right yeah the sound of a spring this week's episode of the co-main event podcast is once again brought to you by the good people at freshly we've been telling you for a few weeks now about the new meal delivery service that ships prepared fresh meals straight to your door Freshly does all the prep, leaving you no shopping, no chopping, no cleanup. At this point, if you haven't gone online to sign up for Freshly, I'm not sure what you're doing with yourself. It's so easy, Chad. All you have to do is go to Freshly.com, sign up for one of their four different meal plans, select your meals for the week from the rotating menu, and Freshly sends them directly to you in a refrigerated box. Then all you have to do is just heat and eat. Each fresh meal is ready to go in about three minutes, so they're perfect for people who live their lives on the go. All the meals are fully prepared before you get them. You just have to heat them up. Freshly is an easy and convenient option for eating healthier every day, and it tastes great, too. A fridge full of fresh meals for the week. Hard to argue with that. Every meal Freshly prepares is 100% all-natural with no artificial flavors or preservatives, no refined sugars, and no gluten. On top of that, right now, Freshly is offering some real savings exclusively for co-main event podcast listeners. Just go to the website Freshly.com and use the promo code MAINEVENT, that's main event, all one word, no spaces, no capitals, to not only get $20 off your first order, but $20 off your second order, too. That's $40 in savings just for for you exclusively for being a friend of the podcast just go to freshly.com today and get started we got music this week from cme listener chris sutton and his band isabel's gift we're going to be playing part of their new track zombie which 
has a total 90s feel, if I do say so myself. I know you're into that. So if you like what you hear, you can check out more from Isabel's Gift at all the major music digital distribution locations like iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, and Bandcamp. There's also a video for Zombie and a bunch of other stuff from the band up on YouTube as well. So if you like it, uh, go on there and check it out. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, new rule for life. Never, and I mean never, let Matt Brown grab a hold of your foot like that. Nothing good happens after Matt Brown grabs your foot. And in round number two, just how worried should we be about Conor McGregor right now? Is it like Michael Bisping drunk at the press conference worried? Or should we be like John Jones worried? And in round number three, Dustin Poirier ain't asking you. He's telling you. So what's up? All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, plus Master Tweet Theater. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from El Guapo. Hey! So Boss Rudin, do you think? Or the Three Amigos El Guapo. Could be either one. He writes, he or she writes, is wearing a diaper to the cage, is wearing a diaper to a cage fight a sign of someone taking their nickname, baby, too seriously? A psychological terror attack? Or just some straight gangster shit? Who wore it better? Baby Albini or Dennis Hallman? <laughs> okay. Uh... Do I dare suggest that your your man goes out there, Junior Albini, to fight Andre Olovsky and is the only person in the vicinity who is not aware that it looks like he's wearing an adult diaper? Okay, well that... Is that possible? I think that that's a good question with which to frame this discussion, Ben. A very uh, apropos question to start this, this conversation. Because that, I mean, that gets to the heart of it. Junior Albini's real nickname is Baby. That's right, and he looks like a giant baby. As brought up in the email here, and he does, in fact, look like a giant baby. And there's no way for Junior Albini to look at himself in the mirror wearing this alteration to his UFC fight kit and not think, I look like a giant baby, right? (laughs) So it's... Do you think he's having fun with it? Is that what I'm supposed to take away from this? Or... Did he just have no idea as to the appearance that he would offer? I don't feel like I have a good enough handle on his personality to know whether he likes to have that kind of fun. Because you have to have a certain type of sense of humor, not just in general, but also about yourself, in order to be able to go out there on TV uh, fighting Andre Olavsky and figure, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this nickname to the next level, go make it look like I'm wearing a diaper. And then I'm going to be on TV for all three rounds doing this shit. Because that, it, man, that is, that's bold. Is what that's like some Andy Kaufman level stuff if you're doing that on purpose. You know, and we're not here at the Co Main Event podcast to body shame anyone. No. Because we don't want to draw that kind of attention to ourselves. <laughs> no, we do not. But I think it's fair to say, Junior Albini, some of the strangest proportions that I've ever seen inside the UFC's octagon, even at heavyweight, where at times you can see some strange proportions, he's out there looking like he's walking around on two uh, Demetrius Johnsons. This man has a flyweight <laughs> for each leg. Yes. Like, if he's, if he's, what did he weigh in at here? Junior Albini's about, uh, what, 265 pounds right there at the heavyweight limit. You at to get least, down to that. At least two thirds of that is legs, right? Yeah. Because this guy, he, it's like he's got four normal legs down there. Yeah, there, there's a lot going on there. But it does, I think, you know, the Dennis Holman comparison also ran through my mind as I'm watching this because there, thinking about back in those days when you know it was a little more freewheeling you could do what you wanted uh you can maybe even slip some stuff by the ufc's 
uh, fashion police there. And I remember Dana White saying, like, oh, you know, wasn't that ridiculous that that used to happen? And you'd have these guys weighing in in Superman underwear and all kinds of crap. We're putting an end to that. We're going to make this thing look professional. We're getting Reebok in there. We're taking it to the next level. And so far, there have been several instances where it seems like maybe the uniform fight kits did not usher in the total era of nonstop constant professionalism. Well, yeah, for starters, like I said on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, the new design of the Reebok fight kit, which I guess I would grant is sort of better than the first design of Reebok fight kits. But even this new iteration looks like people are wearing their dirtiest, oldest underwear out there. Like, especially if you rock the kind of gray white ones like Junior Albini was doing out there in the cage or the black ones. It just looks like uh, somebody washed them too many times. Like you poured a little bleach in there by accident yeah. with your boxers. Yeah. So that's just kind of a strange look. It is kind of a strange look. I mean, I like that at least they're trying. At least they're trying to fix some of the obvious problems that they had before when it was black with white name versus white with black name guy over and over again. Um, but yeah, let's just say incidents like this maybe highlight how far there still is to go. Do you think it's possible that Junior Albini just literally couldn't get his monster legs through the leg holes of his... Reebok fight kit and therefore had to go with sort of a uh, speedo type look. You know, it's very possible that Reebok does just not make clothing with the Junior Albini body type in mind. Have we had any response from the UFC on this? Because we brought up Dennis Holman. You were talking about it a minute ago. Do you remember when Dennis Holman wore the speedo to the cage? Yes. I believe there was a wardrobe malfunction midway through that fight. Yes. Uh, it was one of those previous gen ufc experiences where dana white kind of flew off the handle yes, about, dana, about uh dennis hallman wearing the speedos and they came out and said you can't wear speedos in the octagon anymore and gave uh brian ebersol i believe it was an extra bonus for beating him quickly and getting them off tv so do we have any response from the ufc here about junior albini's like not necessarily quite speedos but certainly like pamper Huggies-style look. At the time of this recording, I'm not aware of any. But what is the UFC really going to say here? Like, what can you say without then somehow kind of accidentally embarrassing Reebok over all this? Well, you you, you can't find the guy either, right? The guy no. who just went out on the last fight and was like, I need to buy toys for my kids. Well, also, he's just trying to get by. You know, but this is, if, if it is possible that he did not really know how this looks, this, again, goes to my longstanding theory that when you're selecting who you want in your team, who you want in your corner, you know, yeah, you want like a coach who you trust, like somebody to cover all the fundamentals, but you also need a guy or a girl who can be honest with you, who can look you in the eye before you go out there and be like, no, this isn't going to work. Yeah. We're going to the backup trunks. Yeah. We got to do something here. Next question this week comes to us from Jay Gargiulo. He writes, after Clay Guida's impressive and brutal finish of Joe Luzon, he asked the crowd for some help in his contract negotiations with the UFC. They responded enthusiastically. I assume he means the crowd here. Uh, but will this actually help him get the extension he wants? He said out loud he didn't want to go anywhere else, which kind of kills his negotiating leverage. It was a feel-good moment for a UFC stalwart, but will that be an effective tactic in the WME slash IMG slash Endeavor slash whatever the fuck era? So, Ben... uh just as Jay Gargiulo says here, uh, Clay Guida gets the first round TKO over Joe Lazon, a minute and seven seconds, which was a nice way to start out the main card of, of Fight Night 120 over there on Fox Sports 1, and then does, in fact, uh, get on the mic 
and give like both a very likable and like kind of a uh, a plea for a new contract, but in a way that still makes Clay Guida sound like a, a total company man, right? Right. Although the idea that hey, just because he said I don't want to go anywhere else kills his negotiating power, I I don't know about that necessarily. I think that that's actually a smart way to play it if you're going to leverage the crowd to get behind you and try to get the, the UFC, pressure them to come to the negotiating table with you. You don't want to go out there, and so, especially if you're where Clay Guida is right now in your career, you don't want to go out there and be like, I need this many cheers or I'm walking. Everybody, you better stand up right now and get behind me. You want to frame it as like, hey, I love it here. This is great. Uh, but then again, there must be a reason why I have not signed a new contract. Therefore, I, I want you guys to let them know. And if you're Clay Guida, what a nice time you picked to go, go out there and finish a fight. I think the last time he finished a fight was 2011. I don't think he's ever, uh, I don't know if in the UFC he's ever gone out there and finished anybody with strikes quite like that. So good timing on his part. Um, but I feel like if you're going to go that route where you got to tell people, hey, uh, I want you to help me put the pressure on the UFC, that's about as good as you can do it. Did you see any of these reports from after this that maybe this wasn't actually the last fight on Clay Guida's contract? No, but that that would be very MMA. It would yeah, it would be to like give an impassioned plea for a new contract. And then realize he did the math wrong. Yeah. And like he I think he started it off by saying a lot of people might not know this, but this was the last fight on my UFC contract. Yes. So if that turns out to be not true, you could include among that list of people Clay Guida. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite knowing what's going on with Clay Guida's well, contract. Fine. Hey, maybe you get a head start. Yeah, he's just trying to get out in front of it, right? Getting trying to get out in front of the negotiations, Does just like the UFC more? likes to do. One more, two more. What are, what are we the, looking at? The tweet I saw, I believe, said he had two more fights left. What? Two more mean, after this? Yeah, which would mean that uh, he and his brother need to get a, invest in a new abacus. I guess <laughs> that's the problem. Blame the abacus. Next question this week comes to us from Jack Wilshire, who, if Jack Wilshire is not a, like a center back from the 1940s uh, English national team, I'd eat my hat. Um, I'm gonna, let's let's play a little game here. You want to guess which Premier League team Jack Wilshire plays for? Is center back a real soccer position? Uh, what I'm looking at here says midfielder, but I've learned that you can't always go by this. But let's not focus on that. Who what do you think he plays for? Premier League team does. Jack Wilshire play for well it wouldn't be funny to send us a, a player from a team nobody had heard of before so uh I mean my my brain is saying uh Chelsea my heart is saying Crystal Palace Arsenal okay well that's that's the other one everyone's heard of I yeah. guess not as fun to say as Crystal Palace though Next stop on the Legends Ass Whooping Tour, Michael Bisping, question mark, question mark, Jack Wilshire writes. So just three weeks after Bisping loses his quote-unquote title to GSP, he's going to China, of all places, to take on Kelvin Gastelum. Personally, I believe this is too quick a turnaround for the former champ, especially after getting choked unconscious. Seems like a weird move for him as well, considering he's basically blind in one eye and has a wonky knee. What are your thoughts on this fight, and should Bisping have taken some time off before returning? Please discuss discuss so ben uh this is the, this was maybe the biggest roller coaster of the past weekend right to announce that anderson silva uh had been flagged again by usada for a potential anti-doping violation so was out of his scheduled fight against kelvin gastelum and then basically right on the heels of that you got news that 
Michael the Count Bisping, who obviously is fresh off his own loss to George St. Pierre at UFC 217, is going to step in and fight Gastelum. First of all, I'm going to ask you, are you pro or con the Count getting right back in there after uh, after uh, this this fight against GSP, which ended both of him getting stunned on the feet by a punch and then getting choked unconscious? I respect the hell out of him for wanting to do, to do it and for having that kind of attitude. I mean, I also feel like, in a way, a part of me feels like it's good to have that old Bisping back, isn't it? The guy, the company guy who just wants to step up, take a fight against somebody when it seems like, you know, an opportunity to fight a contender in the division has popped up out of nowhere. I realize upon seeing this that I kind of missed that Bisping. I prefer that Bisping to the one where he's champion and is really trying to pick his spots and make the most of having the title while he ha- while he has it. So since maybe he doesn't think that he could keep it against some of the hungrier contenders in the division. But I also feel like, man, this is why we have like the safeguards in the sport to kind of keep people from doing this. Because he went out there, you know, he got roughed up a little bit against George St. Pierre. It wasn't like a, one of the worst beatings we've ever seen, but, you know, he got dropped by a punch and he got choked unconscious. Not that worried about getting choked unconscious. That's, you know, it's a blood choke. It's not a huge deal. But you did get dropped pretty solidly there and you could see it all over his face afterwards. And then three weeks later, he's going to be in a fight. You know, when he is taking it on short notice, that to me seems dangerous. It also is just going out of your way to point out what a laughing stock even the idea of medical suspensions is. Because he got like a 30-day medical suspension. We're not supposed to do anything like for these 30 days. And instead, within that range, going to jump right back in there and fight like one of the top 10 in the division. Uh, like that's that's the kind of thing that you would, I guess, hope the commissions and regulatory bodies and the UFC acting as its own commissioner uh, would not allow. And yet here we are. Yeah. November the 25th, Bisping will be back in the cage at the storied Mercedes Benz arena over there in Shanghai, China. Now you obviously just mentioned the UFC acting as its own regulatory body when it goes over to do some of these international events uh, in localities that don't have their own uh, sanctioning bodies, their own regulatory uh, influences at play. Uh, how big a red flag is this for you that, that as you mentioned, Bisping could get that medical suspension coming out of UFC 217 and then turn around just a couple weeks later uh, and fight Kelvin Gaslam? Because to me, it's like if the UFC is going to act as its own oversight committee, basically, uh, you would want everything to appear very much above board. And even if Michael Bisping didn't suffer any sort of uh, injury coming out of that GSP fight, even if he's good to go physically against Kelvin Gastelum in this fight, this at least is kind of an eyebrow raiser for me. Well, I would think, like you say, if you were going to be your own commissioner and you want to act, like I would think you would want to err on the other side. Like you would want to make sure no one could even level the accusation unless you got to the point where you figured out, nah, nobody really cares that much. Uh, it's fine. Like, I mean, he he did get solidly floored by that GSP left hand, right? And so that that's the kind of thing you might want to think about if you're going to throw the guy into another fight with another dude who can hit you really hard three weeks later. And then I guess that's the other part of the question here is, like, if you're Bisping, is this a good idea? Because on one hand, he went out there afterwards and he was like, well, I can't quit like that, right? Like, I, I, I can't go out like that. So you'll see me back in there. And so I wonder here, what's the goal for him? Like, is He's talked a little bit about, like, oh, this left a bad taste in my mouth. And maybe is it just that that's the only thing he knows how to do coming off, like, a, a loss that really hurts? 
is get right back in there, try to get a win to replace that one. Because I can kind of understand that impulse, but at the same time, you go out there and lose to Kelvin Gastelum, which, taking the fight on short notice right after you just got kind of thumped and then spent, you know, whatever the next few days or week uh, doing the the post-loss blues stuff, you're not totally ready to go in there. You're not as ready as Kelvin Gastelum is. You, you could very easily go in there and lose and get knocked out, and then what? You know, then then where do you stand? Yeah, I mean, I think if nothing else, it certainly draws a line between how we as outsiders and fans and journalists view this sport sometimes, uh, and and then on the other side of the line, how the actual athletes view this sport, because uh, they're out there doing this as their job, right? And from the outside looking in, as just observers, we like to impose all this stuff on them, like legacy honor like we really want michael bisping to value his legacy right now right like we talked about it on the podcast after the saint pierre loss where i was like i think history will look kindly on michael bisping he's the all-time wins leader in the ufc uh you know if if he barring a complete breakdown for him and he retires i think he'll be remembered as like a top 20 ufc fighter uh and now michael bisping turns around and immediately takes this fight against kelvin gastelum where it's like well if he wins it we might forget about it Five years down the road, right? right. We'll be like, well, I forgot that Michael Bisping took a fight two weeks later against Kelvin Gastelum and bested him by Bisping-style unanimous decision. But if he goes out there and gets torched by Kelvin Gastelum, who, by the way, before that loss to Chris Weidman was coming off back-to-back wins over Vitor Belfort and Tim Kennedy, so a guy who ain't no joke at 185 pounds, if he goes out there and just torches Bisping, aren't we going to like have a little feeling in the pit of our stomachs, like kind of like a Johnny Hendricks voice? Oh, man. Well, yeah, and not to mention, if you couldn't go out on the loss to GSP, how are you going to go out on the loss to Kelvin Gastelum? You're going to tell yourself, well, hey, I took it too soon. I was trying to replace the heartbreak. Now you got to go out there and get one more, and you see where that goes. How are you going to go out on a win over Kelvin Gastelum? Really, like a two-week turnaround over Kelvin Gastelum at this event in Shanghai that I think this is a fight pass only event. Yeah. So Bisping's going to come out here, beat Kelvin Gastelum, and be like, oh, okay, well, now, now I'm good. Now I'll I'll go ahead and return to Manchester and live quietly with my wife and family. Yeah, at my least burgeoning DJ. Four business. dozen people saw me beat up Kelvin Gastelum, so now I, I can retire in peace. Next question this week comes to us from Kevin Schuler. Did we, did we Google that one? I think Kevin Schuler's been on the podcast before. Okay, hey dudes, kind of old news, but Zufa boxing is a thing. Am I crazy to think that the UFC is doing this to protect itself from stars using the Ali Act to get out of their contracts? Now when they want to box, they'll have to stay with Zufa and box under the Zufa banner. Maybe I've been listening to too much Eddie Bravo, but this seems like a clever move by the UFC. Oh, playing some three-dimensional chess here, huh? Yeah, so Dana White goes over to do this speaking engagement at the Wild Card West Boxing Club in uh, Santa Monica, I believe, California, which is owned by uh, the filmmaker Peter Berg. Uh, who's kind of a big combat sports fan. I think it was Dana White and Freddie Roach were kind of doing a, a Q&A and a, uh, a presentation to a to the gathered crowd there. And Dana White, as he's apt to do, breaks a little news while he's there, uh, mentioning that he is not only he and Ari Emanuel, one of the co-CEOs of Endeavor, are going to be getting in the boxing business more or less full time, but also this was the event where he said they were going to uh, scratch Darren Till from his fight in Orlando and move him over to uh, to England to have him fight uh, Wonderboy Thompson. And then immediately after Dana White said that, Wonderboy Thompson's people came out and said, yeah, nobody asked us about <laughs> yes. that. So some, I think you got to take... some Just Sam stuff was going on? That's that's not a, a, a lengthy digression for no reason. I'm saying I think you got to take the stuff that Dana White is saying at the Wild Card Boxing Club 
uh, with a grain of salt. Yeah, well, come on. Anything, when you start talking about the Zufa boxing thing that, you know, he shows up in the t-shirt and then the next thing you know, we're 100% getting into boxing. Believe it when I see it. And not a second before then. Agreed. The first time somebody being paid by Zufa as a promoter throws a punch at somebody else's head with a boxing glove, that is the moment that I will believe it. Agreed. Although... For the purposes of this conversation, I would say, if we pretend that this is true, what are we to make of the idea that Dana White uh, and Ari Emanuel want to get into the boxing business? Because on one hand, it's not that big of a surprise that Dana White, a former amateur boxer himself who has always professed his love for the sweet science every time he's gotten a chance, would want to become a boxing promoter. But on the other hand, and you know, when I interviewed Dana White for the feature that I wrote about the Mayweather-McGregor fight before it came out, one of the things that he said to me a couple of different times was in kind of like a world-weary voice, I can't do this every weekend. I've got to run my own business. This isn't really what we do, promoting this big boxing event in addition to uh, the big the MMA UFC news and, and, and work that he's got to do. And when you do damn near 50 shows a year, damn near 40 shows a year this year, uh, it seems like you wouldn't necessarily have a ton of time for extracurricular activities. So I'm a little bit surprised to go from him talking about Mayweather McGregor that way, just kind of like what a drain this is on his attention, to then him turning around and being like, on the other hand, I could also do this all the time. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, this idea that maybe it's a end run around the Ali Act, it seems like an awful lot of trouble to go through for something that is still stuck in committee, from right. what I understand. And I don't know that it would necessarily work. It seems like becoming a boxing promoter would expose the UFC to more yeah. liability under the Ali Act would be my totally non-legal scholar take on it. Yeah, I would think that you'd be better off just trying to fight the Ali Act expansion as the UFC has been doing, and then even if it does manage to get passed, then call up your buddy Donald Trump and be like, hey, remember when I came to the convention, made a speech for you, how about do me a solid here and get out the veto? Uh, I don't know. I, the... To me, I wonder like how much of this is aspirational talk from Dana White. Like maybe he would like to believe that this is the direction that they're going. How much of it is on the heels of the Mayweather McGregor thing? Them being like, "Hey, we could do this. This would be like a good expansion for our business." Maybe this is the new global domination. Uh, you've decided, all right, maybe we can't have an office on every single continent and. Maybe that's not the best use of our time and money and energy. Maybe the instead the, the next expansion of the UFC should be like into an adjacent sport. I don't know. But it still has a long way to go before I start taking it seriously because it's just so hard to – I mean imagine what you would have to do to become a player suddenly as Zufa Boxing. Like I don't think there's as much crossover between the two audiences as a lot of people assume there is. You gotta would have to suddenly go out there and get yourself a big name boxing-wise. And the payouts for big names in boxing are typically so different. There's a lot of things that just aren't going to be able to work the same if you're a boxing promoter as they do when you're an MMA promoter. So it seems to me there'd be a whole lot more headaches to doing that. Yeah, on one hand, like if it's just kind of a Dana White passion project where they're going to be putting on boxing cards at the Showboat Casino. Yeah, as a Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series, but they're wearing boxing gloves. Right, yeah, that kind of thing. Like, uh, I, if that's what it is, fine. Like, but if it's a much larger undertaking, it it seems almost disquieting to me as an MMA fan to think, why would Dana White and Ari Emanuel want to take this onto their plates? Where, like, if you've been around this sport since Dana White became the president of the UFC in 2001, you know damn well how, like, totally consumed with the UFC's product he has been over that, you know, ensuing 16 years. To think that he would 
take on another significant promotional venture onto his plate makes me wonder like, a, why would he do that if things are really going so rad for the UFC right now? Biggest financial year in the company's history by boom, far. Boom, boom. boom. Uh, why would he want to suddenly like take on boxing and and be like, if Dana White were to do that, he would necessarily have to loosen his grip on something. I would think. I just don't think there are enough man hours in the day for him to be like both Dana White and Leonard Ellerby. You know. So like, I don't like. It's kind of it would. And I, I think I'm kind of putting the cart before the horse here, but like if Zufa were to engage in a like large scale boxing promotion venture, I would be as a UFC fan, I would be like, what are we doing here? Where is this going? And and what of the cage fighting that I enjoy? Because it seems like something would kind of have to take a back seat yeah. at that point. And plus, if you're going to be Dana White and Leonard Ellerby, you're going to need a lot more suits. You're going to need a, a much increased clothing allowance. You're going to need a, sure. a whole different suit guy for that. I want to squeeze this in before we move on because we would be remiss if we did not talk about it. This question from Harry Dresden, who I assume plays alongside Jack Wilshire over there for, uh, for Arsenal. Sure. You didn't look him up? No. He writes, can we talk about the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix? Please. Yes. By all goddamn means. We got an hour left, Harry Dresden. (laughs) Let's do it. I put heavyweight in quotes because only four of the eight competitors are actual heavyweights. Six of the eight competitors are UFC castoffs. Their median age is 39, which is old even for heavyweights. I can't remember the last time a GP outside of Japan wasn't a complete disaster. Maybe that's the attraction of it all, but I just can't see it. Is Scott Coker bending over backwards to cater to old pride marks? Or is he a mark himself? If anyone cares, my pick is Daniel Cormier winning as an alternate somehow. <laughs> Thanks for the discussion. So, Ben, obviously this past Harry week... Harry Dresden has seen one or two of these before, I can tell. It's not his first rodeo. Uh, Bellator did, in fact, announce a heavyweight Grand Prix coming in 2018 to crown a new Bellator heavyweight champion, correct? That's what we're doing here. We're putting the strap on somebody. Well, we haven't had a Bellator heavyweight champion since, like, summer of 2016. So here we are... Uh, a lot of what you might call recognizable faces in the bracket here for Bellator. You got Chael Sonnen in there. You got uh, Frank Mir in there. You got Fedor Emelianenko. You got the current light heavyweight champion, Ryan Bader, in there. Uh, and, and a smattering of other guys that you would recognize. The youngest guy in this thing is Ryan Bader at 34. How about that? So there you go. And you know what? I'm going to come out and say I feel like Harry Dresden hit the nail on the head a little bit when he asks is part of the appeal here that we expect a Bellator heavyweight Grand Prix to just be a complete disaster. Not necessarily a disaster, but like a kind of a dumpster fire, hopefully in a good way. I will say, yes, obviously, that's part of the appeal. The same way that's been part of the appeal to some extent or another in all the Bellator quote-unquote tentpole shows, all of them have had some kind of aspect to them where you're like, the one of the reasons you're watching this is because it's kind of batshit crazy. And also, I would add to that, what do you think they're telling themselves internally about this tournament at Bellator? Because you come up with a heavyweight tournament where half the guys aren't even heavyweights, and they're all, you know, mid-30s or older. Like, any heavyweight tournament, or let's back up even further than that, any tournament in MMA already prone to disaster or, like, major... uh editing after the beginning due to injuries and other kinds of withdrawals. You increase that threefold when you go to heavyweights. 
and then you increase it probably five more fold when they're all super old. So you know they must be telling themselves like, all right, there's going to be some bumps along the way here. So what is it that makes it worth it? It's kind of a Junior Albini wearing a diaper kind of moment for Bellator, <laughs> isn't it? Like, if you're Bellator and you're, you're booking this tournament, you can't look at yourself in the mirror and be like, yeah, totally above board MMA yep. promotion. This will be fine. Absolutely serious about our business. This will just proceed from one round to the next with no alterations whatsoever. You got to kind of be like, <laughs> we are doing this because it's just going to be a wild ride. And frankly, uh, this is kind of what the people want from us, which as far as I'm concerned, yeah. if that is a self-aware move and a self-aware moment for Bellator, more power to How it. How could it not be a self-aware move? And also, it's hard not to flash back to the Strike Force Heavyweight Grand Prix, which was kind of like the last gasp up from Strike Force before they got bought by the UFC. And it was like, all right, let's do something big and bold to kind of remind everybody that we're here, we're still on the map, and we still matter. And this feels like that kind of thing. I mean, you tell me, you know, you got guys like Fedor Emelianenko and Chael Sonnen might meet in the semifinals or something. Like, yeah, hell yeah, I'm going to watch that. I'm powerless against that. <laughs> it's, it's a form of black magic on me. I can't do anything about that. I have to watch it. So, yeah, I mean, I assume they have to know what they're doing. They have to know, like, the risks, and they know that we know, and that is also part of the appeal. Uh, I just wonder, like, how... Like, there must be a point out there where things could get too Bellator. Things could get too disastrous to where it's not fun anymore. Something like a heavyweight Grand Prix with a bunch of old dudes feels like you're going to push right up against that line. Well, I joked on Twitter last week that uh, clearly Gegard Mousasi was going to win this thing as an alternate. Man, that is that joke is a little too close to truth. Well, then I started thinking about it a little bit more, and I realized, God damn it, you know who's winning this, right? Like, who actually is going to win the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix? Chad Griggs? It's got to be Tito. <laughs> it's got to be Tito. Coming out of retirement for the finals against Chael or somebody. Yeah. Chael makes the finals of this thing. Something crazy has already happened. But suffice to say, man, I can't wait to spend 2018 talking more about the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix. I cannot do, wait. I do wonder, A, what the drug testing situation is going to be <laughs> for the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix. Uh, also, what what do you say, you're, if you had to put the odds on it right now, that this thing actually concludes? That we make it all the way through, we have a finals, and there is a final winner. The, but it doesn't have to be a guy who started in the bracket, right? Okay. Like just that they have an event where Two the winner questions. of this tournament is crowned. Two separate questions. They have an actual final fight. After, you know, the required number of rounds, what's the odds on that? And then what's the odds that the winner is somebody who is actually in the tournament right now? I would say the odds, the percentage that the tournament gets finished is 60%. Okay. The percentage of whether someone who is in the bracket right now actually wins the thing, 15%. Wow. So, okay. I mean, I expect it to finish, but we just, who knows who will be out there. And that's part of the fun. That's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. Uh, the newsletter itself is short. 
It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And the upshot is, if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Round one of this week's co-main event podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsors at Fulton & Rourke, purveyors of, in my opinion, the finest men's grooming products out there. As you well know, Fulton & Rourke and the CME are partnered up this month to sponsor the great Movember Grooming and Styling Contest. This is week two, and we're pleased to say that this week's winner is our guy, Nathan Grotenhouse, up there in Ontario. Ben, his handlebar mustache is coming in nicely. Sure is. Because of it, Nathan is going to get an awesome gift set chock full of Fulton and Rourke products mailed directly to his door. The good news for everybody else is that there's still a couple Mondays left to get your entry in for the Great Movember Grooming and Styling Contest and score yourself some free stuff from Fulton and Rourke. Nobody ever said rocking a sweet mustache or beard was going to be easy, but the winners of this month's contest are going to be richly rewarded. That's right. Every week during the month of November, Fulton and Rourke will give away a free prize pack of their world-class men's grooming products to the CME listener who shows the most the most ingenuity, creativity, and stick with their grooming routine. Just tweet a picture of your facial hair to me and Ben. That's at Chad Dundas and at Ben Folks MMA. And once a week, we'll pick the guy with the most inspiring quaff, announce it on the podcast, and the dudes at Fulton & Rourke will send you some gear for your face. If you aren't active on social media, don't worry. Just email a picture to comaineventpodcast at gmail.com, and it works just the same. That's one winner every week, but to be considered, you got to send us those pictures. Get started on your stash and sideburns today, and remember that this month, Everything you buy at Fulton & Rourke helps make a difference because 15% of all profits will go to cancer research, treatment, and prevention. Congrats again to Nate uh, for being this week's winner. And now the rest of you need to get started showing off your razoring or lack thereof. There's still time. I don't know if you saw, I'm sure you saw Nate's mustache. I felt like you see that and you're like, man, you grow a mustache like that. You're already halfway to winning a Cy Young Award in 1977. The thing is, like, I believe he entered both weeks, so we got to see like the original picture. Yeah, you see a little bit of progression. And then week two is already you're like, well, this guy he's rocking it. Yeah, now. I look at him and I'm like, I don't, I why do I feel like you had 27 saves for the Oakland Athletics? <laughs> well, Ben, Matt Brown and Diego Sanchez go out there co-main event style this past weekend at UFC Fight Night 120. Matt Brown comes in with as the winner in three minutes and 44 seconds with just a crushing elbow to the side of the head of Diego Sanchez. I saw somebody on Twitter say that it looked like Matt Brown was a samurai who was trying to chop Diego Sanchez in half, which I think is a uh, an apt description of what happened out there. Uh, so Matt Brown ends up getting the win and what he hinted at possibly being his retirement fight. But coming out of this thing, neither guy fully pulls the trigger on a retirement. We know Diego Sanchez is going to soldier on Matt Brown hedging his bets a little bit as well. And you know how those things go uh, coming out of this fight, Ben, did it, did it depress you? Did it make you as sad as you thought it would? Or were you able to find a, a place deep inside you to put the emotions surrounding Matt Brown's weird and uh, kind of brutal KO of Diego Sanchez? Well, as you'll recall, I predicted this last week. I said, what was going to happen is that Matt Brown was going to go out there 
put Diego Sanchez away probably in the first round, and then immediately after he did would be like, yeah, what else did we expect? I mean, that's almost a direct quote from what I said, and pretty much that's what happened. So maybe that's why I didn't feel quite as depressed by it because I felt like, okay, here's what seems like was obvious was going to happen. The the exact nature of the finish, if anything, like made it somehow less sad because at least it, it did feel like kind of a decapitation in a way and that at least it's over with pretty quickly. At least it wasn't just like a prolonged beating of Diego Sanchez. And man, it was just a remarkable, like just disdainful elbow, like just backs him up to the cage holding his foot and then takes the time to kind of clear his hands out of the way and then just comes down from on high like a Tekken move with that elbow that just crumples Diego Sanchez's whole body, turns him upside down, and then kind of stands there looking at him for a second. And the moment, though, he gets on the mic and starts, you can hear him, and he had been doing it all fight week, kind of walking back the, I don't know, about the retirement thing, then that's when you feel like, okay, you open the door to that thought, and chances are we see Matt Brown in there again. Yeah, and it, it kind of makes me wonder, like, if you're Matt Brown it's not like someone's going to come along and be like, Hey, Matt Brown, how about a Conor McGregor fight where you make 2.5 million? You know what I mean? Like Matt Brown is just going to keep getting UFC fights. So it's not like, I think he can realistically expect to be like, well, maybe this is my last fight, but if something real juicy comes along, I'll jump on that. Like Matt Brown can't bring himself to walk away just because Matt Brown loves him some fighting. Like they're going to call Matt Brown on Monday and offer him, you know, some other 170 pound contender that he can go out there and get into a sweet scrap with. And he's going to have a real hard time saying no. Well, and plus a lot of the stuff he was saying about why he was rethinking it was like, well, Hey, you know, I didn't expect to feel this good to have this good a training camp and to, you know, feel as positive heading into the final fight as you did. And maybe one of the things you ought to consider is that that plays a role, like telling yourself, this is the last time I'm going to do it probably made that a lot easier. Uh, easier, at least, than being like, here's another training camp and an endless series of training camps. This is the only way I have to get my paycheck, and so I have to keep on going through it. And, you know, it's like you tell yourself, this is the last time you're going to do it. Like, I remember playing, you know, uh, football, and it'd be like, even if you were having a miserable season and you're hurt, if it was the last week, if you knew your team wasn't going to make the playoffs, you knew this was the last week, suddenly it gets a little easier to suit up to stuff every day because you know that it's it has an end date in sight. And so maybe like those things kind of played off of each other where you felt like, all right, I feel suddenly so good, why should I quit now? But then if you go right back to like the open-ended question of like when will I quit, does it then become a grind? I, I mean, I think he will ultimately have to answer that for himself. I remember one of the things that somebody told me, I think it was Aaron Riley told me this once, that, that the reason he knew he had to retire was that after a fight or like after a training camp, even headed into the fight, he knew he was going to retire, win or lose. Because he said, if somebody had told me, okay, you got another fight booked, you got to go right back into training camp, I would have told them, just shoot me in the face instead. I can't do it. And that's kind of when he knew, like, if you even the thought of another training camp makes you miserable, then that's the time to quit. So I don't know, maybe, you know, if this is what it took for him to feel, feel like he had a new life, sure, go ahead and see how long that lasts. But I feel like eventually you're going to have to wind up answering the same question all over again. Yeah. And knowing what we know about what makes Matt Brown tick, you have to look at this current and in some ways new welterweight landscape and just think, well, this is nothing but hitters. 
from start to finish. You got Rafael Dos Anjos, you got Jorge Masvidal, you got Darren Till, you got Mike Perry, you got Santiago Ponzanibio, you got Kamaru Usman. Uh, you know, you got guys where uh, hashtag would watch any of them fight the immortal Matt Brown. Like and a lot of them would love to make their name off of Matt and, Brown. And, and Matt Brown would probably like nothing more to get out there and prove that that ain't going to happen, right? So uh, you're definitely, in my opinion, going to see Matt Brown again. Uh, and it's probably going to be against one of these young guys in the welterweight division in, in the kind of fight that will be a real uh, crowd pleaser and the kind of one the UFC can throw on any damn card it wants and people will be interested in it. Let's talk briefly about Diego Sanchez. Uh, I guess we know exactly what to expect from the Diego Sanchez fighting life at this point, 35 years old, uh, the final. He's the last guy from the original tough, right, who's still out here plying his trade. I believe so. If I'm not well, mistaken. In the UFC. A lot of pink on the Wikipedia page for Diego Sanchez dating back to about 2009, and yet you know he's just going to soldier on and on. Uh, the, let's. What did you think about the actual strategy here? Because we've talked before about Diego Sanchez in some ways, in my opinion, kind of losing his way, getting in love with uh, being a brawler and going out there and getting himself into these uh, wild Donnie Brooks in the UFC, kind of abandoning the wrestling base that we saw from Diego Sanchez during the early years of his career. Clearly, he came out against Matt Brown with a game plan to try to wrestle and just couldn't get him down. Well, and I don't know if that strategy is going to go over for him super well at welterweight. I just don't think that he has the size and the strength to do that anymore. And I think that he is in a particularly dangerous zone right now for a fighter like him at this point in his career. Because for one thing, it's like if you think about all the things that Diego Sanchez used to do really well, like uh, you know having a, a really strong grappling base uh, and just in in uh, defatigable motor where he'll just keep going and going and going can take a lot of punishment and never really get stopped or even all that hurt by strikes uh, and just overwhelms you kind of with sheer volume and relentlessness. And if you're going to go up to welterweight, then you're going to give up some size and strength. You're not going to bring with you the same speed and quickness that a lot of lightweights going up to welterweight would because just like age and wear and tear you're not going to be able to hold as many of those guys down and just kind of ground and pound your way to them just because of the size and the strength difference. Like you're obviously not taking punches as well as you used to either. You know, he, he never used to get knocked out. And then three of his last four fights have all ended with strikes like stoppage due to strikes. And other than that, you know, loss to a BJ Penn, which goes down like as a doctor stoppage, he never was stopped by strikes before that. So that's a bad sign for you, especially because it's like the last two, you're getting put all the way to sleep, basically. Like, it's not just like a, you're getting hit, you're getting wobbled, and then you can't kind of get back in the fight. The guy keeps hitting you. The ref says to improve your position. You don't, and he stops it. Like, these are like one big shot, and you're done, which that does not get better with age, especially if you keep taking that kind of punishment. So if you're Diego Sanchez, and you have to ask the question, how are you going to beat these people? And you see the last victory he had was that one over Marcin Held where he grappled his way to the victory. And I don't see how many welterweights he's going to really be able to do that against right now in the UFC. This is an unfair question and probably an impossible question, but what's it going to take for Diego Sanchez to call it a career? Because I wonder to myself, if Greg Jackson and Mike Winklejohn said we're not doing this anymore, would would Diego Sanchez just go back out to California like he did the first time he quit the team and find someone else to train him out there and like – 
you know, if Diego Sanchez's wife was like, we can't do this anymore. Would, would, would he be willing to listen to, to anyone around him telling him that, or is Diego Sanchez just, uh, gonna do it until he just like physically can't drag himself out there anymore. It's really hard to imagine. I mean, if, if his coaches told him, I, then I think he would find new coaches. And that's part of the problem with this game is you can always find some coach who can be like, Oh yeah, no, I think you still got it kid. And by the way, I need 10% of your purse. Uh, I don't know if, if you're Diego Sanchez, are you even in a mindset to listen to anybody when it comes to that kind of thing? Or the moment they tell you, does that then become proof that they are not somebody you should listen to about this? Like this is one of the virtues of your fault situations for Diego Sanchez because his absolute dogged determination has been a strength for his entire career basically. And now it's going to end up being a hindrance because it's going to not allow him to see what everybody else sees. I think definitely this ends with Diego Sanchez getting dropped from the UFC, picked up somewhere else, dropped from there, picked up by somewhere else. Like, I think this probably goes on way longer than any of us want to look into the future and see. Well, Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to do a little Master Tweet Theater. It's been a couple weeks since we've seen him, so it'll be exciting to catch up with him. That starts right now. It's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. My winter coat is coming in. I see that. I was meaning to talk to you about that because I, I feel like you should see a doctor. You're not supposed to have hair on that part of your forehead. Indeed, sir. Hair where there was no hair before, as they say. I wish it didn't sound like you were bragging. I really <laughs> do. Uh, so what do you bring us today? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I have another exciting episode of Master Tweet Theater with a particularly fiendish theme. Oh, good. Fiendish theme. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. I felt like our themes had gotten a little well, a little flaccid lately. So okay. I think what we need is just a, a quick, vigorous... A turgid theme. Indeed, indeed. How has this already gotten so disturbing and we're in, like 45 seconds in? Well, well, our engorged theme this week <laughs> is... Four OGs and Cody Garbrandt. That's the theme? That's the theme. The five answers to Master Tweet Theater will be four, not necessarily pioneers of MMA, but but OG MMA athletes and Cody Garbrandt. So it's kind of, we're playing find the Cody Garbrandt here? So if I guessed Cody Garbrandt for every one, I would be certain to get at least one right. 20%, sir. Unless you factor in that Sir Nigel is often lying when it comes to his themes. True, He says one's going to be Cody Garbrandt. It turns out every single one is Henzo Gracie. (laughs) Maybe Henzo Gracie quoting Cody Garbrandt at one point. Oh, it's a genius theme, sir. (laughs) All right, go ahead. Yes, let us begin. This episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by MTV's Total Request Live, (laughs) the show that started doing the same bit we do with the exact same name years after we started doing it. TRL has the same Master Tweet Theater you know and love, but with personalities you like better, such as Liam from One Direction, Tyler and Josh from 21 Pilots, Jyler and Tosh from New Agenda, Jaden and Braden from Truth Crisis, Aiden from Final Solution, Kyler from the Ubiquitants, Taylor from Taylor Swift, Lil Quirk, Vunge, and Arbor from the Trick Squad. Mm. Excuse me. Yes. 
Indeed. <laughs> Something in Sir Nigel's throat. That was the Trick Squad. Okay. And many more. MTV's Total Request Live. You owe us thousands of dollars. <laughs> I was meaning to talk about my love of the music of Final Solution. That's... uh. One of my favorites. I like their earlier work. After a while, they got into something weird. Yeah, it did take a turn. <clears throat> Let us begin. Tweet the first. Pride FC, this shit is all your fault. If it wasn't for you, I'd have a black family. Frowning emoji. Several black people emojis. Okay, that feels like an OG, and I'm going to say the OG in question here is Rampage Jackson. Yeah, I mean, that's what it sounds like, right? Rampage Jackson? I'm going to go Rampage Jackson here. It is. It is Rampage Jackson blaming a defunct fight promotion for his wife. What a big old romantic that guy is. Mm -hmm. It must be very lucky to be Mrs. Quentin Rampage Jackson. <laughs> I'm sure it's the kind of decision you think about every single day of your life. Indeed, sir. Tweet the second. Detroit, I'm coming. Let's get crazy on December 2. Pour your 40 out. Guzzle it. 19 days to go. Okay, fight card in, coming up in Detroit. Who's the OG on that fight card who wants you to pour your 40 out? Got any thoughts here? That's a good, that's a good, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I have no idea. Um, Henzo Gracie. Dan Severn? Whoa, okay. Both fine guesses, both unfortunately wrong. It is Alistair Overeem. Alistair Overeem count as an OG? He's kind of an OG. I guess. Are you trying to tell me that Alistair Overeem drinks 40s? I think that Alistair Overeem has a, shall we say, stereotype-influenced perception of Detroit. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. I get you. The G in OG stands for gracist in that one. <laughs> that doesn't work at all. It does. Tweet the third. Quote, God lets everything happen for a reason. It's all a learning process, and you have to go from one level to another. End quote. Mike Tyson. That's, he did not say that. That's not, a Mike, that is, that's not a Mike Tyson quote. No, it has all the eloquence of a Mike Tyson quote. And Mike Tyson, you know, big uh, God guy. This is also obviously Cody Garbrandt. Yeah, I think this is our Cody Garbrandt one. It is. It is Cody Garbrandt channeling Rich Franklin and or Randy Couture to deal with his recent loss. <laughs> I thought we'd get you. I thought you would both guess Couture. <laughs> we no. thought we'd, we'd each go with a variation of Couture. Indeed. Indeed, sir. Tweet the fourth. Two main events in three weeks on opposite sides of the planet. Walk in the park. Bisping. That does sound like Michael Bisping, and it, it fits the current agenda, right? The current schedule. It is, it is what he's doing. Michael Bisping. It is. It is Michael Bisping, not really an OG, but enables me to do the voice. Oh, I think, first of all, he does count as an OG at this point, especially if you're going to do crazy stuff like this. Second of all, all right, do <clears> your <throat> voice. Tim Animance in three weeks on opposite sides of the planet. Whack in the pack. <laughs> You're not going to throw on a, a God Save the Queen there at the end? God Save the Queen. <laughs> Thank you. I really wish he had said Gleb instead of Planet. Yeah, that would have been a lot more fun for you and no one else. Opposite sides of the Gleb. Mm. Tweet the fifth. Today is Veterans Day. Say thank you to every service person you come in contact with. More importantly, video of a Ronald Reagan speech. <laughs> huh. 
Okay. Uh, now that feels like a Rich Franklin to me. It kind of does. It kind of does. Ronald Reagan speech. Ah, uh, geez. Oh, gee. Um, Chris Lytle. Huh. All right. Mm. Both fun guesses. Both liable to mistake Reagan for a veteran, and both wrong. It is Dan Severn. Oh, Dan there's Severn. a Dan Severn. There's Dan, Dan Severn. Beast Severn. Once every oh, six months, whether we need it or not. One of the OSGs there is. Indeed. <laughs> Did you watch the speech of the, the Reagan speech? You know, it's about soldiers and why okay. they serve. I watch Reagan for the visuals personally, and this one was just a bald eagle and a flag the whole time. Yeah, well, you know, see, if you'd thrown that detail in, I feel like we both would have got Dan Severn there. His whole house made of eagles and flags. Well, that does it for Master Tweet Theater. What else you got going on, Sir Nigel? You know, it's funny you should mention, sir, I just finished work on an exciting project about a maverick cop who tries to stop a megalomaniacal crime lord from stealing kids' dreams. I see. What's it called? It's called New Jack City of Lost Children. And what role do you play? I play the coach in a recurring dream about sexual inadequacy. Oh, yes. Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstar. Thank you, sir. Chad, wild times in Dublin this weekend at Bellator 187. Uh, one of Conor McGregor's bros, Charlie Ward, goes out there, gets a win over John Redmond. But the real story, of course, is Conor McGregor losing his damn mind. He jumps in the cage, jumps, not a licensed corner man, not there as, as like a coach or a trainer or a corner in any official capacity. There is a supporting teammate and friend jumps into the cage at the end of the first round when the fight is not even officially over yet, uh, unclear whether it's going to continue, but jumps over the fence, parties with his boy, and then when referee Mark Goddard, who, as you'll recall, the same guy who had to tell him to uh, mind his P's and Q's back when Artem Lobov was fighting in Poland, uh, tries to get him out of there, then Conor McGregor turns and flips out on Mark Goddard, walks across the cage, shoves him while he's trying to help up the down fighter and, and check on his health, starts a whole melee in there, uh, and the whole thing is just a disaster. Now, to me, this seems like a troubling development in the life and times of one Conor McGregor, because this seems like the part where when you're making the VH1 behind the music, this is the part where the voiceover says, and with that, Conor McGregor was clearly out of control. What's going on here? Yeah, he was riding high, but it was all about to come crashing down. That's right. Uh, well, it seems like you can't trust Conor Anthony McGregor out at the fights with the lads, right? <laughs> like, if you're D. Devlin, that's the takeaway here, because both times that Conor McGregor that we've seen in recent weeks has gone to an MMA event as a fan, he gets himself in some hot water. Remember that it's the, worked up. That was the event where he dropped the anti-gay slur backstage with Artem Lobov was just a few weeks ago, and then in sounded this, like he might have had a few soda pops at that one too, which may have also been the case here as he as he goes to uh, to this Bellator event in Dublin to support his teammate and I guess a good friend of his, Charlie Ward, in his Bellator fight. Uh, now you didn't even mention this, but the biggest infraction to me is that Conor McGregor slaps a ringside official right in his face. That's right. As he climbs up on the cage, trying to get back in the cage, uh, and I believe it was a Bellator official from all the accounts, tried to stop him, and he reached out and slapped him. 
Well, I mean, let's be honest. If you're Conor McGregor and you slap Bellator official, Dana White is probably sending you a check, right? But <laughs> well, from the rest of us, like, not a, not a great look for the UFC lightweight champion. And in total, the UFC probably not super happy with you giving Bellator all this free publicity. Like, you really made Bellator 187 uh, a noteworthy event over the weekend, where otherwise I'm not sure if it would have been, like, on tape delay from Dublin with AJ McKee as your main event. I don't know if there's a whole lot of people who end up talking about that on Monday morning if it's not for Conor McGregor doing all this. So, yeah, you, you did Bellator a favor, and Bellator, by the way, jumped right on it, too. Went, wasted no time publicizing Conor McGregor's appearance in it. But the tricky thing about all this is, for one thing, anytime Conor McGregor does anything, he has such an army of devoted fans who, by this point are completely all in on the cult of personality with Conor McGregor that they've lost all ability to look at it from like any sort of objective point of view. Like the things that if any other fighter did it, they would find, you know, problematic and reprehensible. If Conor McGregor does it, they'll find a way to justify it to themselves and tell themselves that it's okay. He just, he has that effect on people. And that's kind of the, the flip side of the way he can get you to shell out a hundred bucks to watch him box Floyd Mayweather is that, you know, a lot of people will make an excuse for anything, no matter what he does. And then it still feels like this requires some kind of response because this is just like, it's not just unacceptable to be going in there and causing this melee, but to be going in there and putting your hands on a referee, a good referee and Mark Goddard, uh, who is pretty blameless in this instance. He's just trying to do his job. there, trying to get Conor McGregor out of there. He has no, it's just like if a fan jumped in there, he has no business in there. And he's also, trying to sort out what's going on in this fight. It's not over yet. He's trying to check on the other fighter. And McGregor walks over there and shoves him as he's trying to check on the guy. Then in the ensuing melee, the guy, the, you know, uh, Redmond gets knocked down again. Like, this is just ridiculous over-the-top behavior here that completely interrupts this event. The, the fight arguably has an impact on the fight being stopped when it was. Uh, jeopardizes kind of the health and safety of all the fighters in there at the time. Uh, and as soon as you put your hands on an official, you have a problem. I mean, guys have been cut from the UFC. That guy's been suspended for a year. Uh, Roy Nelson took a lot of shit for uh, kicking John McCarthy in the ass. And at least he was actually in the fight, in like the heat of the moment. Conor Rivera doesn't have had that excuse. But then who punishes him for this? Because Bellator can't do it, obviously. He's not a Bellator fighter. You're over there in Dublin, the Mohegan tribe. The Bellator's buddies there are the ones in the regulatory capacity, but he's not sanctioned as a fighter. Like, he's not licensed as a fighter under them, so they really have no power over him. It seems like only the UFC can do something, and the UFC has the least incentive to do something to him. Well, here's the latest breaking news on this. You had ABC president Mike Mazzulli, who was obviously helping Bellator in, in some kind of regulatory capacity over there in Dublin. He was on the MMA fortnight today with Ariel Hawani. And at least according to him, UFC officials have said that McGregor was to headline UFC 219 at the end of the year, but now will not do so due to his actions at Bellator 187, which uh, I guess you take that for what it's worth, since we hadn't had an official announcement that Conor McGregor would be in action at UFC 219. Uh, it seems like kind of quote unquote punishing him for a thing that may or may not have been about to happen anyway. Wait, is that it? Well, that's all I'm seeing on my Twitter feed right in front of my face at the moment. Let me ask you this. Did he look to you like a guy who was in training camp at that Bellator event? Or did you think train was tra camp supposed to start Monday? 
Is it one of those? Because <laughs> I've been in those training camps. We're Dan Henderson Monday. style. He's just Dan about Henderson, to start just training about hard. To start, yeah. Uh, well, let's 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 segue into this briefly in the couple minutes we have left here. How worried do you think we should be about Conor McGregor? Uh, because you know, you guy hasn't fought and fought in the UFC since November of last year. He's been away. Uh, an entire year he had a, just had a baby uh with his longtime girlfriend and then obviously when he segues back to combat sports it's not in the ufc it's for the floyd mayweather boxing match in late august uh and and now he's out there at these events uh both the artem lobov incident and this one uh kind of acting like he feels perhaps justifiably that he can do whatever he damn well pleases in the world of mma but in just the arena of life, do you see these incidents and think, you know, what's going on with Conor McGregor right now? Hard not to think that. I, I mean, so far there's not a whole, like, it's not like we've had any rap in the Bentley around the telephone pole John Jones style warnings about a, a coming disaster. It's just stuff like this, which I guess is better than that. But it does seem like if, you're in a clearly escalating pattern of behavior here, right? Like you do something, uh, nothing really happens to you as a result. You keep, you'd, you'd go a little farther. And then if nothing happens, then it, it seems like what's going to stop him from continuing to, to escalate this behavior right now. If the only thing you're going to tell me is like the UFC has decided to not have him headline the event that maybe he was never even going to headline to begin with. That to me, I would think he was probably going to take as I can do anything I want to do. I, I don't, if, if he is going to, tone down his behavior would have to come from him, like just deciding that he was wrong. And at least so far his reaction to it does not seem to suggest that he feels that way. It would be almost hard to believe that we would get ourselves into another cliched, as you said, VH1 behind the music situation with a young uh, UFC superstar, but perhaps that's just how this stuff goes. Uh, let's do, are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we'll move on to round number three, Ben, since my, are you fucking kidding me is Conor McGregor wild and out in Dublin related. I will do it first. Uh, this is once again, some of the best evidence that we have to indicate that longtime MMA announcer, Mike Goldberg may have died years ago and has been replaced by some kind of Mike Goldberg robot that just spits out MMA sound bites uh, from previous events. Because I don't know if you noticed this, if you watched the actual Bellator footage of Conor McGregor jumping in the cage, Mike Goldberg carries on as though nothing, nothing is wrong. <laughs> he carries on as though Conor McGregor just won his own fight. He's like the notorious Conor McGregor. And it takes Jimmy Smith to kind of come in behind Goldberg and be like, yeah, I don't know what's happening here. This is weird. It's just like Mike Goldberg can't get outside the, uh, the Mike Goldberg gimmick, even when, when, uh, circumstances demand it. So that gets an, are you fucking kidding me from me this week? You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Well, Chad, my, are you fucking kidding me? Is kind of a positive surprised. Are you fucking kidding me? Do you know Sage Northcutt fought this weekend? Uh, I saw the results on my Wikipedia page. Right. Sage Northcutt, he goes out there on the prelim card of uh, UFC Fight Night 120 over there in Norfolk. Uh, you know, has a strong performance. Now that he's with Team Alpha Male, goes out there, beats uh, Michael Canones uh, by unanimous decision. Looks pretty good. We all say, all right, Sage Northcutt is back. Uh, but this time feels like we've actually figured out the appropriate level of hype to have surrounding, you know, Sage Northcutt, 21-year-old fighter with a career record of 9-2. and two. Now nobody's flipping out. Nobody's trying to act like Sage Northcutt is the next huge thing in the sport. Everybody's saying, 
looks like a good young fighter who is steadily improving. We keep him on the prelim cards of a, a fight card that is not huge to begin with. And we all just kind of let it happen and go about our business. Are you fucking kidding me? Have we actually figured out what to do about this guy? You fucking kidding me? Treat him like another young fighter trying to climb up the ranks? Fucking kidding me? Just a normal guy. Stay to cut. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, in the main event of Fight Night 120, things got greasy and bloody and downright fun, frankly, between Dustin Poirier and Anthony Pettis. Ultimately, Dustin Poirier emerges with a third round submission win when Anthony Pettis taps out to an injured rib, it looked like, during a kind of a, a scramble on the ground. Uh, and then Dustin Poirier jumps on the mic and tries to book himself his next fight against the winner of Eddie Alvarez versus, versus Justin Gaethje. Uh, are you buying or not buying the diamond as a legit lightweight contender at this point? I increasingly buying it. I had a little bit of problems with it. I, I wondered if his chin would hold up at lightweight. You know, he got into a couple little firefightus firefight esque exchanges with uh, Anthony Pettis, held up through those. Uh, had a good game plan, executed it well, and then had the exact right response when he goes out there and is not gonna ask for something he's just going to tell you who he's fighting next and i think he has like actually a good case for that because you'll recall that that uh last fight with eddie alvarez ended in a no contest to the illegal knees uh eddie alvarez and justin gaethje is already a firecracker of a fight you put either one of those up against dustin poirier and it feels like you're gonna have a good time so like i feel like he's making all the right moves here yeah not that we want to require absolute accuracy from a guy's post-fight interview in the cage but I do think we need to correct Dustin Poirier on a fact, okay. right? That he got on the mic and said, uh, people point the finger and say, I slip up in big fights, but that's two champions in a row that I've beat. So what's up? As you said, previous fight against Eddie Alvarez, technically a no contest. Yeah. So what, was he trying to count that as like a disqualification win? As a win. Yeah. So what's up? He said, what's up indeed. <laughs> but on the plus side, now Dustin Poirier seven, one and one in his last nine fights, uh, with this win over Anthony Pettis, which I think you're right, does make him uh, look like more of a legitimate lightweight contender than we might have thought. I think we all, maybe Dustin Poirier was right. Maybe we do point the finger. Maybe we have a tendency to think about, you know, the loss to Conor McGregor, the loss to Michael Johnson, uh, and kind of focus on those and not necessarily take into account just how good he's been over the last couple of, of years. I think that if you're Dustin Poirier, perhaps, the downside of all of this is the same conversation that we've been having about the lightweight division over the last year, and that's that your champion there is Conor McGregor, who we just got finished talking about in round number two, uh, who has been MIA from the UFC for a little bit more than a year. You also have an interim champion in Tony Ferguson, and then kind of a gaggle of guys that includes Abib Nurmagomedov, Edson Barbosa, uh, Nate Diaz, all of whom are, are technically ranked above Dustin Poirier at this point, and guys that... Uh, you know, your champion who's going to decide his next opponent, obviously based on his own whims and not necessarily any sort of outside input, uh, all of whom might make 
better choices as a fight for Conor McGregor, especially since he may have a been there, done that uh, opinion about Dustin Poirier. Well, that's why to me it seems smart of Dustin Poirier to pick out a fight like the Eddie Alvarez, Justin Gaethje one, because you you can't get too caught up in general in these days thinking about rankings if you're a UFC fighter. It, that feels like the old way of doing things. The, the new way is just trying to pick out uh, from one fight to the next, what would be fun? What would the UFC be able to sell? What's marketable? And this one, either one of those two guys comes out of it would make for a fun fight for Dustin Poirier. Either one of those two, he you know he has that history with Eddie Alvarez. Uh, him and, and Justin Gates, G just seems like there's already in an alternate reality a UFC fight night like 137 that is booked Dustin Poirier versus Justin Gates, G, uh going down in like you know, the Massapeak Energy Center or something. Like, there, that just feels like something that would happen. So I feel like a, like a smart tactical move on his part. You don't want to try to reach all the way at, to the top in the, this kind of a situation because you're, then you're just one more guy saying, give me Conor McGregor, I want it to be red panty night, and your voice gets kind of lost. You pick out something realistic and something that is, you know, potentially doable, maybe it goes in your favor. Yeah, we don't want to gloss over the fact that this is a tremendous performance kind of from start to finish for Dustin Poirier. Goes out there, uh, has a really you know crowd-pleasing fight against Anthony Pettis, uh, survives a couple of triangle chokes, uh, more or less controls the action on the feet and then positionally on the ground, uh, slashes Anthony Pettis open. Uh, in nasty fashion, and then ultimately gets uh, what kind of seemed like an anticlimactic win at the end when Anthony Pettis taps out due to injury, but at the same time is a good, solid win uh, for Poirier, so you can't really take anything away from him, and then jumps on the mic, <clears throat> excuse me, to uh, to not request but demand his next opponent. You can't really take anything away from the guy uh, after this weekend, I don't think. Let's talk about Anthony Pettis, though. Uh, kind of the same story with him as it has been the last couple of years, a guy who at one point was the champion in the lightweight division, looked like he was going to be the future uh, of the lightweight division, but at this point has dabbled at featherweight, uh, you know, has, has come back up to lightweight now to try to maybe become pretty Tony Pettis version 3.0, I don't know, and yet uh, emerges with the loss here, which makes him uh, two and five in his last seven fights. What What's the deal, Ben, with Anthony Pettis? Yeah, and... I, I've already heard some people doing the same thing to Anthony Pettis' recent track record as they have done to Johnny Hendricks by being like, hey, did you notice how when USADA came in, uh, they seemed to hit a rough losing skid? Uh, that seems like that's going to be kind of a convenient explanation for anybody who's unfortunate enough to have their skid match up timeline-wise with USADA and really you don't necessarily need an explanation like that to hit a rough patch in MMA. I feel like with Anthony Pettis, one of the problems might be that People have, in watching the tape on him, have been able to spot some vulnerabilities that he has not really been able to close and to spot like some tendencies that he's been able to, unable to avoid. And I still think with Anthony Pettis, one of the things that can make him a really exciting fighter when he's on is one of the things that makes him vulnerable to smart, strategic fighters who can stick to a game plan is that he's going to give you some opportunities out there to, you know, if you can get him on the back foot, get him playing defense... He's going to try some stuff uh, to try to solve that problem all at once that often gets him into a worse situation. You saw him do it a couple times in this fight. Like, you know, He's not the type of fighter who's going to try to fight his way back into a fight a little bit at a time by winning a little bit of ground at you. He's the kind of guy who's going to look for like one flashy 
sudden move that he can pull off, like a triangle off his back even when you're both soaked in blood, and then the next thing you know, you're on his back with a body triangle locked in and his ribs going pop, pop, pop. So I feel like that's been Anthony Pettis for years now, and he hasn't changed that. Yeah, he missed weight during his last featherweight performance against Max Holloway in December 2016, and since then has just been one and one since coming back up uh, to lightweight. He's going to turn 31 years old in January, but still not you know, over the hill for Anthony Pettis by any stretch of the imagination. It just seems like a, a uh, almost inexplicable run of, of defeats for him now. Uh, and, and one that is going to take a long time to rebuild himself, even though you look at the actual losses and, you know, Dustin Poirier, Max Holloway, Edson Barbosa, Eddie Alvarez, and Dos Anjos, those are, uh, you know, respectable losses for sure in any division, but at the same time, a really uh, precipitous fall from grace for a guy who was on the literally on the cover of a Wheaties box at one point as sort of the vanguard of the next generation of UFC stars. Uh, and now uh, has kind of been replaced by a whole new generation of potential UFC stars and a guy who's, who's uh, about as down and out from the, from the limelight as you can imagine. Well, while still being kind of a, a, a viable member of, of either of those divisions. You want to do just saying stuff? Sure. And then we'll get out of here for Let's this do week. Just saying stuff. Ben, what's your just saying stuff this week? We well, you know earlier we talked about Michael Bisping making this quick turnaround against Kelvin Gastelum. Um, and then I saw on Flow Combat this quote from Michael Bisping about his reasoning, why he feels like he can he can make that quick turnaround. Quote Physically, I'm totally fine. My face was a little bruised up for a few days, but I'm totally fine now. That's about it. My right hand is sore where I landed a couple good punches on him, but that's about it. I've had a week off, and all I've done for the last week is eat and drink. I'm still doing that now. I'm starting Monday. I mean, realistically, how much weight can you put on in one week? I've got two weeks until I weigh in, so the damage I've done in a week hopefully can be undone in two weeks. I think that logic should stack up. I'm just saying... For one thing, I did not realize that Michael Bisping and I had such a similar take on how to undo the excesses of food and drink. Also just saying, I felt a little better about Michael Bisping's chances to make that quick turnaround until I heard this this logic at work. What are you talking about? One week on, two weeks off. Makes perfect sense to me. Yeah? Is that how you do it? Yeah. Just one week on, two weeks off. By on, you mean on a good time. Yeah, and then two weeks off. Awful good time. Think that logic should stack up. Just saying. Well, Ben, we talked about the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix earlier in the show. Uh, while we've been recording this, Bellator just officially announced uh, the signing of former WWE star uh, Jack Swagger, real name Jake Hager, former Oklahoma wrestler, who's going to come in and compete at the heavyweight division. So some stuff happening over there in the Bellator 265-pound weight class, uh, to which I got started thinking, and then I wondered... God, I wonder how many times Scott Coker has called Greg Hardy at this point. Do you think they're do you think they're texting buddies yet? Do you think Scott and Greg Hardy are firing messages back and forth? Maybe some Twitter DMs. Just saying. Just saying. It seems like Scott Coker has his ear to the ground on this Bellator heavyweight division. Greg Hardy just made his amateur debut, got the win. Obviously, tons of baggage there. Seems like a Bellator fighter to me, if I had to guess. Are you just saying that maybe... Greg Hardy can get his shit together in time to win the finals of this heavyweight tournament. Now there's an idea. There's an idea. A run in at the end. Cause we're going to have to keep our eyes peeled for that. Just saying that's going to do it for this, this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that's going to happen at this uh, upcoming fight night event 
uh, with the main event Fabricio Verdum against Marcin Tibera. And then we'll look ahead like we didn't, we, like we haven't already done this to Michael Bisping versus Kelvin Gastelum. No telling how things change in a week. Lucky we don't record these things in advance, right? Yeah, we should do that though. So we'd, our episode that week would still be talking about the return of Anderson Silva? Yeah. And just really excited about this Marcin Tybura thing. That's going to do it for this week's show. We are done. We are through. We are out. So what do we need in order for people to feel like this weekend's Verdum Tybura fight is noteworthy? Like, does, does Conor McGregor need to jump in the cage there or what? Like, will that not even do it anymore? Yeah, well, it'd be kind of like a, a something we've already seen at this point. Yeah. Right? I don't know if Fabrizio Verdun is just going to be able to go out there and make that face. And it's all fired up in those And that face is kind of 2015.